Varmt välkomna till Kulturhuset Stadsteatern i Stockholm. Mitt namn är Ingemar Fast och jag är konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen i detta grandiosa allkonsthus vid Sägelstorg. Alldeles strax ska ni få möta Katie Kittamora i samtal med sin författarkollega Agnes Lidbeck. Nu börjar samtalet. We've been laughing our heads know, off in the green room for like the past <laughs> half hour. So um, we're, we're not that focused yet on the books. We've been updating each other on our kids and yes, COVID world. and everything. But it is such a happy reunion. Yeah. I'm, I'm so truly happy. Ingmar, thank you so much for bringing us together again. This is just the greatest gift. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. And it's so nice to see an audience again. You've been telling us, uh, or me, that you've been doing a lot of Zoom talks. I have done books. so many Zoom talks. How does this feel? This is completely <laughs> magical. It feels extraordinary to be in Stockholm and to be here with a you know, with my wonderful publishers and to be here with a live audience is almost startling, but yeah. it's, it's wonderful. Yeah. yeah. Should we just like address the COVID questions quickly before we get into <laughs> the, into <laughs> Let's the address the COVID questions. Uh, yeah. No, but I mean, coming out with a book yes. mid-COVID. Yes. How, how was that? How, how's it been? It was, it was, it was strange. I mean, it was, I'm, it was, in the middle of COVID, there's still a, a lot of political uncertainty in the US as well. It did feel like there was a lot of different places your attention could go. Um, there are a lot of books that came out as well mm. last year. I don't know if they did this in Sweden, but in the United States, they pushed back many of the books from the previous year. So it was a busy time, but I, I, I still got a chance to meet some wonderful readers and I got to do events with writers I love. So it, yeah. was, it was fine in the end. And yeah. and my first question isn't about the book, but you to it's about the process because this is a pre-COVID work. Yes, you told me very much. I mean, f I finished the complete draft before the lockdown, and then the lockdown started. And it was probably quite a good space to be in because I was editing the book during lockdown, which was very different from having to generate work. Mm. Um, so I just kind of you know feel distracted, go upstairs, move the words around go downstairs, go to sleep. That was kind of my, my schedule during... Actually, what was it like for you? Were you? Did you finish writing your last book during the lockdown or...? Uh, we didn't really have a lockdown. Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> We've had I a forgot. sort of different way of doing stuff. <laughs> I forgot. Uh, but at some point, yeah, I did finish a book. <laughs> but uh, I'm much more interested in talking about your book <laughs> at this point. Um, so, intimacies? Yes. Yes. Um, and the last one was the separation. A separation. A separation. Yeah, in, yeah. One, one separation, but many intimacies, yeah. apparently. Because yeah. it's jam-packed with intimacies, yes. this book. Yes. Um, I don't know how many of you have read the book, either, either in Swedish or in the original English, but should we do the, the you tell us what it's about from your perspective? <laughs> yeah. And then we'll see whether we agree. Yeah, yeah? absolutely. I mean, the, the novel, the kind of impetus for the novel started many, many years ago when I was listening to the radio and I heard Charles Taylor, the former president of Liberia, and he was speaking in his own defense at his own trial in The Hague. And there was something that was so deeply disquieting about the experience of listening to him. You know, he was a known 
war criminal. Um, there was no doubt that he was guilty of the things he had been accused of, but he was also a very gifted orator, an mm. incredibly good manipulator of language. And as I was listening to him, I felt this small, strange sliver of, of doubt, of kind of confusion. Mm. I felt, found myself, you know, responding to his language. And I think as writers, it's very easy to think that language is always about clarification and about achieving some kind of revelation of a truth of some kind, but in fact, language can be used to obscure the truth and mm. to create deceit. And so that tension was kind of the starting point for the novel, um, which is about a woman who moves from New York to The Hague in the Netherlands to work as a court interpreter at a institution that's quite closely modeled on the International Criminal Court. Yeah. Um, and she's quite soon tasked with interpreting for a former war criminal, sorry, a former president who's been mm. accused of war crimes, mm. um, who is loosely based on Luhon Bagbo of Cote d'Ivoire. Mm. So, mm. yeah. Does that seem accurate? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, but I also find it really interesting because I think probably because of your last book, A Separation, and the title, Intimacies, I expected you to lead with the love story. Mm. There's also a love story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was... I mean, when you asked about writing the book in in lockdown, I didn't write the book in lockdown, but I wrote the book between 2016 and 2020, which were quite particular years in the United States under mm. the Trump administration. And I think one of the things I found myself thinking about a lot, and I continue to feel this way now, is that gap between the global events of historical significance that are taking place around us, mm. and then the very small scale day-to-day -day concerns of the individual life. Mm. And so that gap between individual and the kind of larger social context was something that I wanted to think about in the book. So the book is not a courtroom drama by any means. I would say maybe, I think it might even be less than a third of the action takes place in the courtroom. And the rest of it is really in her personal life and in, in the way there is that very powerful disconnect between what she knows is happening in the world and at her work yeah. and what she's very preoccupied with in her personal life, which is, which is this um, tricky relationship with, 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 with yeah. somebody who's absent from most of the novel, which is in fact a very similar structure to what I used in my last book, which also has an mm. absent yeah. partner. There's an absence and also I think in, very interesting. Uh, there's a lot of violence in this book. Uh, there's a, a very subtle recounting of violence where you don't you don't get the blood and the gore, but you get the essence of of violence in in the courtroom. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's also violence in the personal relationships, a violence in in his absence from her. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I have written about literal physical violence before in the past. Um, and I think in this book, I wanted to think about different forms of violence. And there are many, I guess I could have called the book violences, but there's many instances of, yeah. of violence throughout the book. And those range from, you know, there are kind of war crimes that are recounted in the book. There is an assault in the book that takes place kind of off stage. But it's also thinking about things like institutional violence, um, violence kind of, you know, it, it's a novel that is thinking about colonial legacies as well to some extent, and then about 
interpersonal violence, which often in this novel I think has to do with withholding. And so in yes. the case that you're referring to, it's, it's about a character who is withholding from the central character, and there's a kind of violence in that mm. as well. I think I was also trying to think about um, language and, and violence and how the control of language can be a kind of violence or robbing somebody of their language. Mm. There's a kind of, um, you know, what does it mean to speak the words of somebody else? Yeah. Um, can that ever be a form of transgression? Th those kinds of questions were kind of flip, you know, moving through my head as I was yeah. writing. Hmm. I, I have this stupid question, <laughs> but uh, you're from New York. Yes. And I think for most of us living in Stockholm or Europe, New York is, it's a dream. I mean, it's a, it's a place where if you could move anywhere in the world and be a writer, you, could move to, you would move to New York and you'd never have to write about anywhere else <laughs> ever again. <laughs> because the image of New York and the metropolis and the, the pulse is so compelling for us as a fantasy. Mm -hmm. And here you are with New York outside your window. Yeah. And you chose The Hague. Yes. <laughs> Which is, uh, seems, at least in the book, to have a, a, a more quiet uh, phase of life. Yeah. Wait. What does, I mean, I, I realize now when you, when you sort of lead with the, with the war tribunal um, idea that it sort of needs to be placed in The Hague. But this sort of moving it to a, a smaller town, uh, a more quiet context. Have you thought about what that does to the to the pe to the characters in the book? I mean, I think I I like the kind of model of a stranger arriving in a strange place, mm -hmm. and I I you know I knew I wanted. I think that even the opening pages of the book are about the kind of hyperacuity that you have to a place when you're when you're new to it. Um, and so for me, being able to write that comes from bringing somebody to a new place. But it's interesting because I was just, I've just been involved in a kind of panel that's about, you know, the 25 great New York novels and, 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 and there are a number of other writers on it. And so we've been spending a lot of time talking about the way New York appears in fiction. And it's a big beast to write about. It, it takes a lot of chutzpah to write a mm. novel about New York. You're writing against a really, really big legacy. Well, um, Oster sort of yes, sitting on it. Yes, <laughs> exactly. And, yeah. and, and so for me, that ground is, is so occupied that I feel like it would, it would be, you know, I'd have to like really claw and push and find my way into that. And I think so many writers have done an incredible job of doing, you know, Teju Cole is somebody who I think has kind of done a beautiful job of writing about New York in a way that feels incredibly fresh. But I think for me, it's also this question of authority and I'm not a writer who believes in my own authority as much as I'm interested <laughs> in other people's authority. And so, you know, the care, I, I, I never, I actually don't write from a place of deep confidence. And I feel like to, to tell a story of New York requires a writer who has that kind of mm. author sense of authority. And, and that's, that's not me. I write from a place of uncertainty. I write from a place of not knowing. That's really interesting because uh, as a reader, I would say that you exude authority. <laughs> It's, it's a facade. In the way, <laughs> well, I, I mean, um, I know that you're a very nice person, <laughs> but, 
but but coming to the book, mm. you are knowledgeable, not just in the way you constructed the book, but about the world. I mean, this is not the work of someone who's sort of unsure about the human mind. You seem really like you really, really know your characters and also the many ways that that people can actually work. You you don't you don't come off as unsure in your. I text. I don't. I, no. I don't. I, I hope that's, is that, that's good. That's good, That's yeah. good. <laughs> I, I mean, it's super. <laughs> I mean, I find first person a really strange format to work with. I think in part because I, I did study literature and it's so full of, you know, when I think of first person, I think of Humbert Humbert. I mm. think of, you know, Confessions of Max Kroll. I think of a... Of sort of like the New York yes, of, kind of perspectives. Exactly. It, yeah. it really is. Yeah, yeah. I think of like yeah. command and authority mm. and I'm going to tell you a story. It often feels quite masculine in some ways. And I think for me, it was only possible, possible for me to write in first person when I thought about it in terms of uncertainty mm. in some ways. So I think the character is is never sure what she's seeing yeah. and so she she is it's interesting because i've seen her described <laughs> as a good interpreter at work but a poor interpreter of human relations that's interesting which is interesting to me because yeah. i actually think it's less that because it's definitely true that she assesses and then she reassesses mm -hmm. and then often she sees it again from another angle and i think to me it's less that she's a poor interpreter of human relations and it's more that she sees that there is a real inconsistency in the way that people behave yeah. and she sees that there is no fixed personality there's no fixed terms to the way two people are with each other that everything can shift very very rapidly so those are the that kind of uncertainty is what I'm always trying to explore in the, mm. in the writing yeah and um in the first five pages there are seven different place names are there yeah you span <laughs> the globe and it's it's beautifully done uh i'm not going to read it because they're spaced out so it's it's hard to do like in a reading but you travel from new york to singapore to london to yeah. the hague yeah. to somewhere else i can't remember right now um <laughs> but but there's this 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 view of the world as sort of very, very close together and these great distances at the same time. And you enter into this book with the with the character sort of view of the world, which is a very, very small place where she could have ended up anywhere. And yet you have these great, great distances at, at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering, what what is her sort of incentive for moving in the world. I mean, once once we get to the to to the story, uh we realize that she's driven by love maybe mm -hmm. in in her staying in a place. Uh but what drove her there in the first place? I mean, I I think there's a real question in the book about attachment and what and place and what attaches you to a place and you know, there's there's all the. I mean, it's also the opening was a, was the last thing I wrote, which is often the case for me. I, I I write the novel and then the opening never works, and then I have to redo the opening, and then my editor says it still doesn't work, and I have to go back and redo the opening. So that 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 opening, which I think has many of the of the city names, was written quite at the last minute. But I I think. I mean, I, I was having a conversation with a friend who's a writer, and we were, you know, talking about what it means to to grow up in a dual 
cultural or dual language household, which I did, you know, to have the sense that home could be where you are, but also maybe where yeah. your parents are from, or, you know, and I, I've, I've, you know, my family's from Japan, I grew up in California, I spent most of my 20s in, in London, that was the kind of first place where I felt like I was a, a grown-up and I wasn't mm-hmm. in school, and all, all, all three of those places have really left a big imprint on me, and I think, you know, and I was saying, sometimes that can feel destabilizing to not be firmly oriented towards a single culture, and I'm I'm kind of almost envious when I see people who say this is the thing, this is my home culture, yeah. this is what I write about, this is what I, this is what my territory is, and he and he is also from, um, you know, India, London, and now lives in New York, and and he said that you can see it that way, but you can also see it as a tremendous gift, and he says it's at once a sense of being displaced, but it's also a sense that you could be anywhere in the world and find a home. And I think that tension is really operating in the book, where on the one hand, there is a sense that she could go anywhere, she's multilingual, she has this kind of cosmopolitan capacity. But she's competent. Yes, and she's competent. Yes, exactly. She she's can, not a lost no. woman wandering no, the world, no, sort of exactly. She ending can, up She can wherever. get things done, she yeah. can be employed, yeah. she can be functional. Yeah. You know, I mean, function is really something that she thinks about a lot. Yeah. Um, she's highly appreciated at her work. Yes, she's good at her job. Yeah. All of the, but I think... She makes know, friends. She makes friends. Even she's not so good she makes at... Bad friends. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. So that kind of question of what, if then the world is open to you, where do you choose? Yeah. What what actually makes you end up in one place over another? Yeah, and and that's you know I sometimes even in my own life I feel that I mean we're in New York for now. I I don't know how long we'll be there. Um, I don't you know a lot of the, when talking about New York a lot of times you know it's a kind of trope that people say you know if you live 6 months in New York you're a New Yorker because it's the most welcoming city in the world and I I do not feel myself to be a New Yorker at all so I stuck on <laughs> well I I have been eating such delicious food as I've been boring my 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 publishers endlessly saying every single meal I eat is so delicious here um yeah, yeah. but I mean, she she is competent, and she's she seems well liked, mm-hmm. even though she's not always well treated. Mm-hmm. She seems well liked, mm-hmm. um, and still so very very alone. Mm-hmm. Is that something she chooses? The, yeah, I mean, there's a moment in the book. She's in this. Um, it's actually, I don't think it is actually a complicated relationship because the reason I wanted to write, it, it's a rela- relationship where she has been seeing somebody for a short amount of time who is recently separated from his wife and they, he has children. Um, and he kind of says to her, you can stay in my apartment while I'm gone. Mm-hmm. And then he kind of ghosts her or he disappears for a period of time. And I, I want, you know, I, I have cell phones and there is the internet in my book, but I'm not a person who tends to write about technology in some way. But the phenomenon of ghosting, which I think is quite specific to the way we interact with text messaging and dating apps and everything else, I was, was something that I wanted to write about because it felt like quite a, a modern predicament. Um, so that was, that was a kind of impetus for for writing that particular structure yeah. in the book of a of a kind of romantic entanglement that just kind of dissolves into silence and and the kind of interesting uh technical challenges to see if you can still create movement in something that is essentially static by there's definition. a lot of movement <laughs> and i 
we can't talk about the end because you can never talk about the end at these okay. things. Okay. But I mean, <laughs> <laughs> can we just say? <laughs> Is that, I mean, uh, come on. <laughs> Uh, you, I mean, if for no other reason, <laughs> you have to. I mean, you have to read the book so you can all come back so we can talk about the end. Because if I ever read a frustrating scene, mm. ah, <laughs> will you? Well, can, it, can was, you <laughs> it was so interesting because you know there is a there are a lot of I would say problematic male characters in the book, right? From uh, yeah, the, yeah, the serial the sort of real lawyer, yeah, philandered mm -hmm. lawyer, yeah. the 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 boyfriend, the war criminals, the war criminals. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So th there's a lot, and then and there's they're also all on par. <laughs> <I would say. laughs> yeah. And it was really interesting because I was somebody had sent me a review, and and I was looking at it, and it was saying the villain of the novel, and then it said the bo the boyfriend. And I was like, is, is he the villain? I thought it was... But there's a war the, criminal. The, you know, I was saying, but there is a war criminal. So it was... I mean, that was... I, I, I granted one of the things that I guess I wanted to do in the book is 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 to say that it, the, the strangeness of, of this character who's spending her time thinking about, you know, extremely serious crimes and then being worried that somebody hasn't texted her back, which is ab absurd, right? So that's when I kind of... that So granted, but... I don't know if it was too effective because I didn't. I didn't intend for him to be uh, on par with a with a war, <laughs> with a war mean, criminal. But but I mean, also the women in the book, except her, are quite also horrific. Yes, I think that's true. Uh, but I like to write. I like to write those characters. I think. Yeah, and I mean they're supremely believable. Uh, but but I keep coming back to that where we started with the violence because they're all so very violent against each other yeah. towards each other yeah in their sort of silences and whom they chose to flirt with at a party and the way they invite each other for dinner yes. and everything is is there's this it's like a pressure cooker of violence in this very quiet, sedate city yes. where you've built this sort of temple to reason. Yes, yes. And everyone who's associated with it seems just boiling with rage. I, it's my take. <laughs> Do you not I, find I, them boiling I, no, with rage? I, 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 Maybe I move through the world in quite a paranoid way. I think that's definitely very, very possible. I mean, I think the thing is that people behave in outrageous they ways all the do. time. Yeah. I think, and we pretend they don't. And I, and I look around at the relationships taking place between people, and people do outrageous things, and then we kind of act as if it hasn't happened. Yeah. Um, and that's how you have to be. That's that, that that that's how you move forward in the world. And I think at some point she even says that about her partner, which is that, you know, at some point we, we might be together in the future and we'll look back at these and there'll be like blind spots that we just yeah. move around and, and, and we act as if they never happen. And the fundamental truth is that there is no record of perfect harmony between two people, whether they are friends or, 
or lovers or mother and child or, or, yeah, yeah. or whatever it is. In fact, the, the kind of quality of interaction is always incredibly fraught. And I, I mean, part of that is maybe having children, but you see that, you know, when you're with children, you see the highs and lows of daily experience are so extreme. Yeah. There is nothing that is normalized about it. There's nothing that is regulated. And there is that sense that that is always underneath the surface and that people can suddenly behave in ways that seem extraordinary, shocking, out of character, but then when you actually look at it, they're completely consistent yeah. with who they are and how they've interacted with, with people in the yeah. past. Uh, but I find it very refreshing in this book that even though you seem to see the characters in their uh, humaneness, <laughs> their, their, with their flaws and everything, yeah. um, I don't think they're driven to the extremes of what they could be. They're, you don't seem to feel the need to sort of do a caricature. They're, mm -hmm. they're very believable. Mm -hmm. um, and, and just sort of moving away from, from your book specifically and, and, and more to what you think that literature can do. Um, we are writing in times of great difficulties. Um, what do you think, how how should we sort of portray <laughs> what we see around us? Should we make it sort of with these really brash colors and, and very clear for people to see and, and reflect? Or I prefer the way you do it actually, which is a bit more subtle, um, where things aren't black and white. Um, but I was just thinking, is this is this some sort of process that you've had and thought about, or or, or is it intuitive? I, I mean, I think I think there's so many different ways of approaching it and different styles, and I think writers have a different sort of set of tools, which re, which results in a in a different kind of fiction. I mean, one thing that became a real trope during the the Trump years, which carry on, sadly, but it, but as people kept saying that he outperforms fiction in a way. So it's beyond satire. In a way, the reality had surpassed the fiction. And one thing that I really felt very strongly is that there was such an astonishing blunt simplicity to his message and to the way he used language and to the, in, in general. Um, it really was what, what it was. It almost defied metaphor in some way. It was the thing itself. And and one thing that I did feel very strongly, you know, because it, the question of like, what is the point of literature, uh, which is a which is a question. It is. <laughs> um, good, yeah. um, but um, is that I think that literature allow, surely if you, you can stand in opposition to something in so many ways, but I thought one way is to kind of insist on complexity. So mm. when you, everything around you is a simple narrative, if you are just arguing against that simplicity, that's a very small thing, but it is still a thing. And mm -hmm. so I think in this book in particular, I was really preoccupied with resisting simplicity, with resisting a kind of easy answer, yeah. with working in layers and contradictions, confusing moral quandaries. I wanted people to do things that that didn't seem logical or predictable, That that... Where, where it's not the thing itself, but always something else. And so it, it's it's a kind of layered book in that way. And I think that was very much a response to what felt to me a kind of flattening of discourse and a flattening of language. And I think, you know, always the difficulty is that, and I, and I do understand this in political terms, 
But there's a difficulty in that it seems that the only way to respond to that blunt simplicity is with more simplicity, yeah. right? You, you, mm. you feel like if somebody's shouting at you, the only way to, to, to respond is to yeah. raise your yeah. voice. And I understand in many, many cases that's, that's true. But in the case of my very small novel, which is the one place where I have control and can do what I want, I thought it's actually the opposite. And I'll see if by speaking quite quietly, there's an opportunity to try to argue for, for complexity. Yeah, and for reason. For reason, yeah. yeah. So this is the antithesis of the Will Smith slap. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in in the, book form. I mean, the Will Smith slap Can is we very... Can we talk about the Will Smith <laughs> I mean, the, it's, it's been, there's been, uh, as it's like a generator of takes, right? Yeah. I feel like there's mm. been many, many thousands of words already spilled, <laughs> spilled on the Will Smith slap. And I, I don't have any words on it, but I'm fascinated by how divisive it's, yeah. it's been. Mm. Um, and I think on a human level, it seems like somebody who's operating under really, really extraordinary psychological pressure and who has felt the need to be extremely controlled in his public persona and that, that went in one evening. Yeah. I don't have a take on the Will Smith side, so, so, so we'll leave it to you. Uh, I also need someone's help because we had such a good time in the green room that I forgot my watch. So can someone just... Please give me one. <laughs> Hand me your watch. Thank you. There we go. Thank you. <laughs> um, getting back to the book, um, away from the Oscars. Uh, it's a book about language. But all the love is silent. Can you reflect on that? Is love silent? Is language something else than love? Oh, what an interesting question. Because the softness between people yes. in the book is yes. nonverbal. Yes. I mean maybe I mean maybe that does go back to the very start of the book, which is which is about how language can be manipulated and and I think the character has a lot of caution about language and is aware of how it can... I mean, language is one of the great skills for giving people emotion. I mean, a, a speech. I mean, and I, I do this as well. I, I listen to a rousing speech or whatever and I, I, I feel moved and I enjoy feeling moved in that way and that's one of the deep pleasures of language and it's also one of the great unreliabilities of language so I think I think that's something certainly for for the character um, that distrust of language is 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 something in that sense that you know is when is language the thing itself and not all the, all the time um, and I think also as a writer I don't know how how you feel but I feel quite excited when I feel like I'm brushing up against the kind of limits of Language. Of, of language, yes. and I feel like I, I, what seems like it should be the most frustrating part of writing when you're feeling like the language is getting gummy and it's it's not flowing in some way, and you're kind of it's it's sticky or it, it's not or you're not hitting the word you want to hit. That's actually the most exciting part for me. You know, I have a suspicion of great facility in language, and I I'm not you know I I don't want to be the person who who's able to express themselves flawlessly 
on the first time. That, that kind of facility with language, look, there are many writers who have that, and I, I love that, and I admire it greatly. But for myself, what I'm much more interested in seeing on the page is a kind of tussle mm. with the language in the sense of somebody trying to, I'm not quite making it work, but I'm trying to find a way. And, and you know, what are the boundaries and limitations of language? So, you know, rather than simply seeing language as like an instrument that you play and you perform a beautiful piece of music, instead seeing it as like almost like a kind of clay and sometimes a thing falls apart in your hands and you think that's a shame <laughs> and and sometimes Oopsie. it yeah and sometimes it builds into something yeah. that kind of messiness is 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 something that i'm much more interested in and so then i think when you're trying to create a moment where you're trying to it's so much of the novel as well here's where the kind of trap door of language falls open and then you're trying to create a moment that you're just trying to signal to the reader this is actually something real, whether it's longing or, or trauma or hurt or whatever it is. And I think in this novel, trauma in particular is something that can't be expressed in, in language. Then I think that's a moment where you have to try to open up a space of silence or emptiness mm. instead. And so I don't know what it means that love and trauma are both operating in that gap in the, inside the novels, but yeah, I think that's probably true. Yeah, but but... I think it's also really interesting because there's a there's a scene in the in the in the courtroom drama part of yeah. the of the book where a young woman gives testimony uh about the war crimes of the uh one of the <laughs> one of the men yeah. uh the many men um and she um the way the way i remember reading the scene uh you 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 paint this picture of her words being less important than her voice uh it's her tone of voice and her her calm voice her um, the sort of tenor rather than what she actually says in her in her testimony that really carries a lot of weight and it's one of the first times or maybe it's the only time that the that the the accused uh seems to feel actual fear mm -hmm. that her voice might condemn him mm -hmm. quite soon after that scene um the trial falls apart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I thought it was really interesting because in a sort of the traditional dramaturg way of building it, that would have led her her sort of gift of her testimony and and and, and the way she's actually credible would have led to something maybe positive and then after that something else would have happened and it would the trial would have broken up <laughs> but the way you link it um it's not that easy it's not it's not good versus bad versus good versus bad it's it's this beautiful scene of someone giving of themselves for the greater good ending up in in nothing mm -hmm. I, I th thank you so much for saying that. It was one of the um, 
I think, more... In some ways, it wasn't the most difficult scene to write, but it was the scene that I thought about the most, for sure. I mean, I, I was always very conscious of the fact that I, um, despite the fact that the, the figure of the former president is central to the novel, I didn't want that character to tell the story of what had happened, and I wanted that to be from the point of view and the, the voice of, of one of the victims. Um, and I think it is, it is about this kind of extraordinary testimony, and I, I think it's very true. One of, what one of the characters, I think the judge says, is that you know one of the injustices of this trial is that it demands of you something, and it demands nothing of the, of the accused. Yeah. It demands the sacrifice and this performance yeah. of you. Um, I, I think one of the other things that was really important for me in that scene is that that is the first, if not the first, it's one of the major moments when the interpreter feels as if the act of interpretation is almost a transgression. Mm. And there's a moment when she says that it's very, you know, she thinks it's very strange and somehow wrong for me to be speaking the I of this character yeah. because this is not actually my experience and it is not my it's story. It's not my first person. Yeah, it's, <laughs> not, my, it's not my first person. Yeah. And, and there is this kind of idea that in the act of... of, of what this woman is required of this woman is actually a kind of violence in itself. It's, it's somebody taking her words. It's her trauma being performed for a court and utilized. Yeah. And although there is, as you say, a kind of hopefully an, an emotional register to that, I think the reality of the scene is the kind of necessary hypocrisies of a courtroom trial. Yeah. Because that you've established very well before that scene. Mm. Uh, I just, if, for those who haven't read it, because you've been very clear about the the sort of play acting yeah. uh, of the yeah. courtroom. Yeah. Uh, and still, yes. uh, it can't be done in a in play acting. It, it, it can't be done outside of reality. Yes. <laughs> yes, I mean it is such a difficult it's a really it's it, it's one of these one of the interesting projects of uh, or elements of the book for me was to think about you know it's not a critique of the institution of international criminal justice <laughs> but it is trying to think about the fact that it is an institution and that yeah. as such it functions as an institution and it has it has all the necessary you know, restrictions and limitations of an institution. And that is just the reality. And it yeah. does require the suspension of disbelief in that way. You know, a courtroom is not unlike a, a novel. It's, mm. It requires you believe even though you know that it is not this. Yeah. Um, and that that is probably maybe why I was interested in writing about the courtroom is, is this kind of metaphor for, for the novel where you must enter into the reality of it even as you recognize all the artifice around it. But, you know, one of the... Um, one of the funny things about writing the book is that so in 2016 I went to the ICC and I sat in on, you know, about a week and a half of the trial of Laurent Gbagbo and um, at the time I I suppose naively assumed he would be found guilty. I don't I don't mm. I, I, I was no expert and it was also very interesting to sit on, in on the trials because I realized how little of how little the narrative I could understand. Like I, it was so um, densely packed and so micro in a way that I couldn't say to you at the end of the day was that good for the defense or good for the prosecution yeah. it was very it was for me as a lay person it was very hard to understand but you know I, I'd always wanted to in order to avoid the kind of 
act of inventing an African dictator, which is completely runs counter to the ethos of what the book is trying to do. I wanted to hew very, very close to the facts um, without appropriating somebody else's story. So I based it very closely on on, on the Bagbo case. And then as I was fit reaching the end of the novel, he was found not guilty. Yeah. And so then that became something that I had, I, I decided to put in into the book. And it was a kind of, um, it wasn't the kind of Hollywood resolution that, that I think might be more more typical, but at the same time, it seemed completely consistent with with the messaging of the book and so on. Yeah. But I did, I did have a friend of mine, um, the, the writer Rivka Galchin, who's, who's a wonderful writer, and she said, she, she, I went to visit her class, she teaches at Columbia University, and she said, you know, what, what was the kind of message by the ending, and the ending that you're referring to, and I said, oh, you know, whatever, whatever, and then afterwards, outside, she said, I thought that the message of the book is that everybody gets away with it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that might be true. Um, is is the writer in the, you said the the in the courtroom is like a novel uh is the writer the defendant or the witness oh in this in this case oh i mean i think those are all the the defendant and the witnesses are the 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 characters that you're moving around and putting through these into these, I mean, I, I often have this kind of sadistic desire to put my characters into quite difficult situations and see what they're going to do. So e even though, as I, I said, that I don't like to write from a position of authority, sometimes with your own novel, you find yourself quite fascinated by this kind the of... the judge. A little. <laughs> <laughs> I, you, sometimes it feels yeah. that way, yeah. Um, I, I personally, I hate having uh, my work compared to to other people's work. Uh, but I, I want to ask you about one specific author uh, and one specific book. And I don't know if you've read it. Uh, it's the Nobel Prize winner uh, Nadim Gordimer. Have you read her? I have read which which one? A Sport of Nature. I haven't read that. Uh, because she does something which I think that you also do really, really well. Um, and that is writing about the... I mean, it's hard to talk about, I think, on stage and as women. And But there's, in the book, there's this pull of attraction towards these very powerful, albeit evil, uh, mm -hmm. people. Mm -hmm the the main character feels it there's this pull of their authority uh and sort of almost she's all, almost under the spell of of the defendant who she translates for and i think it's really beautifully done in the book uh nadim gordmer does it as well uh, but she she writes about a woman who actually has a relationship for a long time with with one of the people who might end up in the hague uh, at the uh, towards the end uh, this this powerful man uh who does things for reasons that you might not always understand um but writing about that sort of tension Mm. Did you was it difficult or was it just 
any other subject because it's it, <laughs> i mean even addressing the fact that that intense power mm -hmm. with a hefty dash of evil in it mm -hmm. can still sort of be attractive in some way mm -hmm. it's 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 difficult mm -hmm. um i mean i i think a writer who has and i, I love nadim cordemer's work but another writer who's influenced me a lot is Marguerite Duras. Yeah. And she often writes about, you know, 10.30 p.m. summer. I don't know what the... I think that's a terrible English translation. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know what the French title is. But, but you know, there's a, the character becomes kind of preoccupied with this possible murderer. So I, I think that kind of... That idea of the extremity of what somebody has done being a point of fascination... And then the fact that fascination and attraction are not are kind of adjacent to each other in some ways. Um, I mean, I, I think in the novel I was thinking about how situations stage charisma and situations stage attraction mm -hmm. as well. And it, what happens, I think, to her is that she is finds herself much more porous to this person than she wants to be. And some of that is the mere physical closeness of the of, of, of close close interpretation, which is when you're interpreting for one person rather than for, you know, an auditorium or a courtroom. And and the fact that you are rendering a service for a person, which also has a kind of erotic quality to it. Um, and I think it's never articulated necessarily as a sexual attraction in the book, but there's, there's a, a pull. There's a transmission yeah, yeah, yeah. that's mm, happening mm. because the language is passing through her body. And there is a, a dimension to that that makes her, I think, so uncomfortable that she, um, she, she decides ultimately that she can no longer continue with the work. But, you know, the... the 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 title is because the book is full of closeness and some of the closeness is closeness that she desires and some of it is closeness that she doesn't desire and some of it is closeness that is deeply destabilizing and some for of it her. is closeness that's denied to her that is denied yeah. to her yeah. exactly yeah. i mean it was i think one of the reasons why structurally i had to get her love interest feels like the wrong word but her person um, off stage was because I wanted to allow for those other kind of ambiguous relationships to happen in that in yeah. that space as well. It's also because she doesn't have, um, and which is actually similar to, to Inner Separation, where the starting point for that novel is the idea that this is a character who doesn't have a firm role. To, she doesn't know what role she's been assigned mm -hmm. in some really fundamental way, because the premise of that novel is that it's a woman who's separated from her husband, her husband goes missing, he dies. Sorry for the plot spoilers. <laughs> he, he, he's found dead, and then she decides to play the role of the grieving widow, but she's neither widow nor separated spouse. Yeah. She's neither. And I think what happens when this person leaves in the mid kind of in the in the middle of the book she doesn't know who she is to him she doesn't know what part she's playing and that leaves her vulnerable to all kinds of quite ambiguous relationships in yeah. the book um as we've discussed this is a book uh where i mean you're faced with genocide and and hor horrific subjects but there is one scene that <laughs> hurt me more to read than than I think 
anything I've ever read, actually. Uh, it's, oh. it's such a horrific scene. Um, you wake up in the middle of the night oh. at your boyfriend's yeah. house. Uh, your boyfriend's house at that point, because he's asking you to live with him. And he also wakes up and comes sort of after you into the living room. And in his sort of sleep, bleary eyes, you realize he's not sure whether you're you or his ex-wife. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I, I mean, that was... How can you do that <laughs> to a reader? <laughs> I mean, that was a... That fun, hurt. That was, <laughs> come on. I mean, that was a fun scene to write. No. Um, <laughs> Um, I mean, it, it, it was... It's uh, a deeply sadistic <laughs> thing to make people read that. I mean, I think it is... But it is... It's a nightmare. People, but people do that. I know people that. do that. I people know, but do I... That. <laughs> I think people have routine... I mean, okay, so one thing I, I will say, which is it's just when I first said this, and, and, my, and then my publicist in the US was like, I'm not sure if that's the right way to talk about the book. But I said, I think it's like a middle-aged romance. It's, it is. It, right? It's, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's, it's people who have been with many other people people yeah. and who have real histories yeah. and and there is I think at a certain point in your life you realize that people know how to be with people yeah. they have a set of routines yeah. habits ticks and they regurgitate they make coffee in the they morning they make coffee in the morning they <laughs> yeah. make the and they regurgitate them and yeah. they repeat them and and that's um deeply hurtful <laughs> <laughs> I think it can be I, that's functional I know it's yeah. functional but but still it's one of the most intimate Yes. Moments of the book. Yes. It's a book named Intimacy. <laughs> yes. And the intimacy is turned into like a blade of, I don't know, I mean, Valyrian he's like, he's steel, like a they'd say like, in Game of Thrones. He's like just a plunged zombie, into your back. Yeah, he's like a zombie character <laughs> yeah, in that yeah, moment where he's yeah. an object of real. Yeah. It's like something that's come up from, you know, from the toilet or something it's like yeah. a kind of nightmarish yeah. return of the repressed yeah. is, yeah. is 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 this person yeah. who does it so the 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 the, the one like true bedroom scene yes is <laughs> in this romance as you call it yes, yes. is deeply hurtful yeah it's it's not a great moment for her i don't i don't i don't i don't, I don't you know uh, well the the um the novel that i was thinking about for all because there's a number of apartments in 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 the book that are quite yep. important, but for that apartment in particular, I was thinking a lot about Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, and which is of course, and there's a little, there was like a literal reference to du Maurier in it, and then it just felt too immature, so I, I took it out. But but it, but it is it is exactly a kind of haunted space, yeah. and and the you know the 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 figure the ex-wife is she's there in the picture, she's there in the thing she's left behind, and then she's and then she's actually there, yeah. yeah. Oh my God! <laughs> it's it's a horror story, but, no, but I wanted it to have yeah. that quality yeah, of almost yeah. a horror because yeah. Rebecca feels like a horror. Yeah. It's a ghost story, but it feels like a horror yeah. story. And so then the and then the revelation in that book is that the person. I mean, the dark revelation is that she is comforted by the fact that he's actually a killer mm. rather than simply somebody who's still in love with his wife. Yeah. Which, when you think about it. It's, it's dark. <laughs> it's dark, and yeah. it's not that far from <laughs> from uh, this little pearl, this little gem, <laughs> intimacies, where you're actually comforted by the thought of <laughs> dictators <laughs> rather than modern men. I don't know. <laughs> um, it's a really great book. Thank you. Uh, 
have you said everything you want to say? Because we're getting sort of close to the... I think I yeah. have. I yeah. love speaking to you always. It's 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 my only motivation for writing another book. <laughs> <laughs> Would you be okay with taking questions? Of course. Yeah? Of course. Yeah? yeah. So uh, I can't see, I can't see anything at this point. Yeah, and we can't really see anything at this point. So... Ingmar, kan, kan du bara hjälpa okay, till? Jag har en liten mikrofon. Ja, och ser du om det är jag någon ser, som... Jag ja. ser, <laughs> I think we have a question over here, Good. maybe. Or I'm hallucinating at this point. <laughs> okay, thank you very much for a really good conversation about the book that I enjoyed very much. But I had a question about a scene towards the end. And not without... I don't want to spoil the end, but... I think there's a very, you talked about attachment and, and the characters, the, the main characters, she doesn't have any attachment to mm -hmm. anywhere really. Mm -hmm. But then there's a scene where she goes to the beach mm -hmm. when she leaves the court, which yeah. she's quite distraught. Yeah. And she goes to the beach and she calls her mother and her mother that is sort of estranged. And the mother reminds her of that she's actually been to the Hague and to the beach when she was a kid. And I thought that was a very endearing scene and a scene that sort of attached the character mm. to the yes. Hague. So, and also, and I shouldn't spoil anything, but that's also used towards the end yeah. by the man. Yes. So I was wondering how you were thinking about that scene. And yeah, uh, thank you so much for that question. I mean, it, it's, it's very funny. What's always, um, as a writer, what's easiest for me is, is, is actually scenes like the one in the with the zombie boyfriend. The zombie man. Yeah, yeah. so that, 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 that kind of is, is always... And then the thing that I always have to go back and really work on is the points of emotional attachment. And in the case of that particular scene on the beach, it was, you know, I mean, it's it's first person, but I'm I'm not this this character, and I sadly am not fluent in six languages or what, whatever it is. But I did have a very strange experience when I was writing this book where I... I wrote the first draft, and then I I'd made made a decision, taken a decision very early on to write the Hay rather than Den Hag, and then I realized at the end of writing it that I had that that is my own experience. I actually realized at the end of writing it that I had spent a lot of not a lot, but I'd spent multiple summers in the Hague as a child, and my father, who was dead. I'd had many memories of spending, very, very special memories to me of spending time with him in The Hague, which I couldn't, they felt almost hallucinatory in some way, particularly the dunes, because it was, there's such an extreme landscape, and and especially as a child, you know, like something this high seems like this high, and, and so in my head I almost thought I'd imagined it, and I'd always thought of them as lost memories of, that I would never be able to place. And then from writing the book I suddenly realized that of course The Hague is Den Haag, and all these memories from doing all this research into the book, I was knew the geography of the city quite well. I suddenly realized that that was from my own childhood and I could open up Google Maps and suddenly I could say here, here and here and here where I did all these things with my father. And so that strand of attachment and belonging and grief and home, I then very quickly opened up the document and I and I wrote them, them all in and that was what allowed, I mean, I. You know, I, I love plot spoilers, actually, but I won't talk about the ending. But I mean, one... I mean, it's your book. <laughs> but, but I mean, one thing I will, will say is that, you know, I ended... The ending of a separation is quite bleak. Mm -hmm. And it ends with somebody um, 
who is alone and I as I was reaching the kind of final sections of the book I didn't know what was going to happen but I knew that I knew how to write that ending yeah. and I knew that I knew how to write something that would feel like an ending with this character and I also knew that I was very it wasn't interesting to me and I think I could feel myself like you know like the like the routine just just making the coffee making the toast and that's really difficult for me as a writer I find that it's just everything about me kind of struggles I don't want to do that and so then I, I thought I had to even if it's not convincing even if it's enraging even whatever it is I want the end of the book to feel like a door opening rather than doors closing down and so that was always the aim and you know because I'm not an optimist in my nature there there's don't say <laughs> there's a certain amount of pessimism to the ending but I but I still wanted it to feel like the narrative was opening up rather than shutting down and I think that scene on the beach was you know it felt like it was a, a gift and a moment of respite that I was giving to my character and I think I'd I'd gotten attached I'd gotten attached enough to her to want to want to give her that to her but that was that was completely all one a rare moment when it was something that happened in my life that I just put directly into the book so thank you for that question and it does really add to the the uh, unscripted feel of the book. Like yeah. it actually follows life rather yeah. than uh, an arc. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which I really enjoy in it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I it's. I mean, I use a lot of genre elements in my writing, and certainly with these two books, you know, this has. You could almost call it a well. You couldn't, but you could almost call it a courtroom <laughs> drama. And the separation has this kind of mystery element to it. But I think. I always think of those almost as oh, like uh, kick-starting the book. And then I hope that rather than creating resolution externally in plot and event, to try to create resolution or development internally within the kind of shifts within the character. So that's always, you know, to rely quite heavily on a kind of setup of some kind yeah. and then just to track the ramifications internally with the, with the character. Anyone else? Yes. I was thinking about the scene where uh, she translates in French and then uh, the man requires a translator in Arabic instead. <laughs> and uh, I come to think of confessing in another language and identifying with your mother tongue and so on. How much of that have you woven into the novel thought yeah. about yourself being brought up bilingual yeah so. I mean I, I think one thing that is really striking and it's hard for me to track it in myself and certainly my Japanese has really suffered as I've gotten older it's not as strong as it was when I was a child but I really observe it in my family is that they're different people depending on what language they're speaking um, my mother in particular and you know I think Japanese is a language that is structured so that as a man, you have a great deal more authority, access to authority in the linguistic structure than a woman. And so my mother, you know, like the kind of obvious, the simple example is that if you are a man, you can, for, for your pronoun, you can either refer to yourself as boku or watashi. And as a woman, you're meant to only use watashi. Um, and so like my mother would always, I was <laughs> when I was growing up, that whenever my parents had an argument, my dad would flip to Japanese. And then my mother would flip to English. And so they would have it in two languages. And she would say, and, and, she, and I would say, why do you do that? Because actually, you know, English was always her second language. She was, you know, she always preferred Japanese. She was always a stronger Japanese language speaker. And she said, I feel a much more even ground when I'm fighting in English. Um, so this, but this idea that, 
who you are and the version of yourself depends very strongly on language was something absolutely that I was thinking about. Um, and then I think I was also really interested in this idea of, it, that's the first, that it's actually not in when she's translating for the, interpreting for the witness, that's actually the first scene when it occurs to her that her job and her interpretation might be a form of violence because she she's kind of imposing this colonial lang imperialist language onto this figure who's saying I'm you know I am here I'm in your detention center but I'm gonna have the language I'm gonna have and that's the first moment when she's made to feel that she's speaking language that is offensive and that's up until that point she's been thinking of her language as purely neutral she thinks I'm speaking the official languages of the court which are English and French um, and, and at that moment, she suddenly thinks it's actually more complicated than that. So that's, for me, quite a, a kind of key, key moment when she's being asked to reconsider the power of what she's doing um, and the fact that she does actually have quite a lot of power. And there's a really wonderful um, literary translation theorist called Emily Apter who writes quite a lot about interpretation and transgression and how, sorry, translation and, and transgression and how, you know, sometimes to take somebody's story and render it into your own language can be an act of, of violence and violation and not, and she kind of makes this argument that sometimes not everything should absolutely be translated. So some of those ideas were definitely things that I was thinking about as I was writing. Thank you for that question. I are we allowed to just before we wrap up? Yeah. Can you tell them what you'll be doing after Norway? Can you? T <laughs> is it secret? Well, no, it, it's not. It's not <laughs> secret. But I've I've been I've been I've been uh, I've I've been very paranoid, and I've been going around wearing a mask because I'm hoping to. I'm I'm due to go to Morocco with my family, but I need a negative COVID yeah. test to go there. <laughs> but will you be writing about it? Yes, I hope if I, if I make it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And uh, what are you writing on right now? What are you doing? What am I working on right yeah. now? I'm working on two two projects. One is a collaborative novel with a, a pair of Swedish artists. Uh -huh. In fact, I'm called Golden Who? and Senebi. Okay. I'm mispronouncing. The, all my my emphasis is completely wrong. But um, and then I'm working on a novel, my novel or a novel novel personal novel. <laughs> Um, which is about uh, it's kind of in the in 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 the line with the separation and intimacies, which is it's another person who's speaking other people's language. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it's just another person who language passes through, but it's it's an actor and or act, an actress, a female actor, um, and it is about impersonation and about motherhood. So we'll yeah. see you each other here in oh, four, four years. Four years, <laughs> deal. <laughs> and talk about motherhood. Yes, that's gonna be, yes we're going to be talking yes, about that's what we're motherhood yes, in the green world. <laughs> Thank you so much, Thank Katie. You. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Joy. And Thank you. Let's